Welcome to OKHR Leads, hosted by Tara Crowley and Rob Trotter. We're connecting with HR leaders in our community and hearing their story and what makes them tick. Well, it's a Friday recording day for Rob and myself, but Rob will be on here later. So I'm doing the intro all by myself. Normally we get to have a little bit of banter about it's end of school year, Memorial Day is coming up. What are your plans? Are you going to the lake? Are you going to be in the sun? No, because we need to put sunscreen on. We're getting older. We got to be careful about cancer, skin cancer, all these things. But too bad we don't. Rob isn't on here to have this conversation. So instead, I'm going to jump right in to our conversation because we have a superstar guest today. And when Rob jumps in, I'm sure he will say hi. Um, but we have a superstar guest today, and his name is Todd Beasley. Todd is the director of um, and for Deaconos Group, um, which I was just told means servant healthcare facilities. And this is a senior healthcare provider. That's um, well, I know he's out of Oklahoma City, and but they are located. Uh, he'll get to tell us exactly where because I know that there's more than one location. Um, He's previously served in the Marine Corps, and then also I noted that there was the U.S. Army for close to 30 years for both of those um, uh, serving areas, arms of the armed forces. His LinkedIn profile states that he is a DE&I champion, so diversity, equity, inclusion, for those of you new to this term. Um, and so I hope we get to dive into his experience there and also how it's impacted military and civilian experience. But I expect we're going to take a trip around the sun with this conversation. So welcome, Mr. Todd Beasley. Hello. Hello, and thank you for having me. I'm so excited to get to talk to you today and uh, looking forward to talking to Rob as well when he joins. Yes. So he'll be in and he'll 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 be quiet and kind of, but then he'll jump in with some really great questions. He normally does. I'm always surprised at how he asks. So I'm like, ooh, good one. Um, so Todd, are you in the Oklahoma City area? Well, yes, um, I live in Oklahoma City area, but the, my work takes me all around the state. Our company owns homes across the state of Oklahoma and primarily in Tulsa and Oklahoma okay. City metro areas, but we do have some outlier facilities. So I am a state traveler by trade. Yeah. So you're getting your um, hotel points up and that's always it. <laughs> yeah. Hotel and, and also miles on the Turner Turnpike. I'm very familiar with that road. So it's yeah. It's, so hopefully, I know I keep traveling a little bit and I'm like, you know, it sure is nice to get these points. Maybe I'll take advantage one day and do something really fun. So um, I looking you up, I'm super curious about your background and how you are armed forces background, but then leading into HR and super curious how all of this ties together for you, Mr. Beasley. So can you tell us a little bit about your story? Absolutely. So I got into HR accidentally on purpose. So my Damn. military experience primarily was in uh, my, you know, in combat arms. And my most recent assignment that was um, prior to HR was as a paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne Division. And so that's the, that's the guys who go out and, you know, do fun stuff. And I yeah. needed a break from that because, you know, when you're on the nation's call to arms that, uh, Sometimes you want to have a little bit of a home life. And sure. so I volunteered in the Army to become a, a recruiter. And, and, and additionally, it gave me a chance to tell my Army story. Um, okay. 
And, you know, well, let's just say have a normal life. We want to quotation marks. And, and then I embarked on an HR journey that's been over 20 years. So from that, it flourished into a opportunity to be a fellow at State Farm in their training and development department. Um, going back and working in recruiting command headquarters as a personnel proponent. And basically what that is, I manage the career life cycle of, and advise the uh, leadership on the career recruiting force and what that looked like for their career. Uh, then I went into a director HR role in the army for a number of years. Uh, and that's where kind of I ended up at that, that level. So um, kind of full circle all the way around from recruiting, you know, uh, career management, training and development, and then uh, general HR, director HR leading, you know, HR teams in various um, roles and, and places. So um, that's kind of what led me to my post-Army career here uh, in, in, in Oklahoma. It's where I'm from, born and raised, so came back home. So I've been about five years with Diakonos Group and, and director of HR there and just an amazing company that, you know, cares for our seniors. And, and I, I, I like to think I take care of the people who take care of people. Oh, right. So we have about a thousand employees and they're caregivers mainly. I mean, that's what they do. So I, you know, put on my hat every day that, you know, I'm caring for the elderly through the care of employees. Right. So that, that's just an amazing Amazing role to have and just a wonderful, fulfilling job. Um, and sometimes I forget I have a job, so it's kind of cool. Yeah, it seems like, well, I'm trying to think that there's potentially a through line for what you did working in the military and caring for leaders there who are caring for um, potentially entry-level uh, persons in military of saying, you know, first time away from home to learning something brand new maybe, and making sure that they're cared for. Because I remember hearing a very long time ago, and I've never found this document, that the military had care for the people in order so that they can do well in their roles. And then somehow, you know, as time went by, some of that caring part was stripped away. And so it was like, here's how to do job one, two, three, four, five. But the caring for the people part is where we always need to start. Sorry, I just jumped in there. I mean, I'm looking at your face. What are your comments on that, Todd? No, that, 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 that's true. And there's a, a direct line in that, that same responsibility of leadership, regardless of the organization, to one, understand the capabilities of the people underneath them uh, that help them accomplish whatever organizational goal they have. But for, you know, in, in, in human resources, and what I've tried to focus on is being that trusted advisor, Mm -hmm. uh, the sounding board, not always the yes person, but the, the person that's going to tell them, you know, exactly what they need to know. And so right. most, and I've worked with amazing leaders throughout my career. Um, and, and, and I think they want to hear, you know, what is the pulse and some, you know, HR sometimes has that pulse. And so, you know, that's been an opportunity to transition that, you know, that transition between civilian and military sectors for sure is that, you know, um, we all have organizational goals that, that need to be met and people do that. And so those people are not just, you know, part of a balance sheet. They're, they're part of your success. Um, and, you know, taking care of them is, is, is mm -hmm. pivotal to being able to accomplish, you know, what we need to do. So, Okay, I got, I'm going to go back to the very beginning of what you said, you were a paratrooper. So I've only jumped out of a plane once. 
don't know that I want to go do it again. So, I mean, I, I say that. I'm sure if somebody <laughs> said, I'm jump again, I'd probably go do it. But it, it would be some pushing and prodding. How often did you do that? Like, how can do you have your listing how many times you did it? jumps? Um, it was a couple dozen over two years. Okay. So quite a few. Uh, more than more than some, less than some, but uh, okay. to maintain proficiency and jump status and, and then also uh, do your job, you, you're jumping about once a month. So I was there in, in Fort Bragg for about two years. So it's about 24-ish jumps. Yeah. Um, did you have so, to, like, did you have to write your will before you did it? Because that's what I did. <laughs> uh, no, I don't. Well, I mean, you do in part of the military and that part of the yeah. no requirement in the military is that you do have a will. Um, but I don't know that I ever thought about, um, well, <laughs> do i think i kind of joke about every one of my jumps was at night I oh gosh well i jumped out of aircraft with my life my eyes closed um so. okay yeah so it, it was all the same yeah so uh but that was that was a fun experience and one that uh you know i always relish uh that that part of my life so it was a uh, it was really 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 a unique and fun experience and challenging all at the same time so i would bet different expectations yeah. So tell us how being director, personnel, HR, military focus looks different than being in the private sector. Uh, yeah, there's just, I, I guess, a different acronyms and nomenclatures, you know, okay. but I think people are universal. Uh, mm -hmm. Their needs and wants, desires are universal. So mm -hmm. it, it's really not unlike anything we do um, in a civilian versus military in the fact that the core, you know, function is, you know, the, those individuals that are, you know, make up the organization uh, directly impact the success or failure of that organization. So, and as an HR practitioner, you enhance uh, that, that, that part of the organization. Yeah. So you, um, listed that you were human resources in combat in Afghanistan. That's just a full stop to me. Like, I don't even know how to ask a question out of that. And what does that look like? And, and I get it that people think, well, I think that I have, you know, there are times that I have a stressful job, but I can't even move into something like that of how different or functioning or how to even move through that. So I don't even have a question, but I, I mean, I'm curious of how that looked and, and what, I know you can't say what you saw, but did you, what did you see that you can tell us about? What was it like? That's different. I'd, I'd love to share you some of the experience yeah. because I think that by and large, if you look at it, most of them were positive. So um, my deployment to Afghanistan was 2010, 2011. So mm -hmm. fall of 2010 through fall of 2011, um, kind of go back in history. Um, that was during, you know, uh, President Obama surged military forces to accomplish some missions overall and some, and I don't want to go into too much the, you know, overall military mission, but, you know, that was a, um, my deployment and, and, and these things do vary, experiences do vary in the military, so not everybody has the same experience, um, so I can speak to my, what I experienced, um, so I was assigned to an infantry brigade combat team, and that's a, about a 5,000-ish uh, person force that is primarily responsible for, you know, combat operations in Afghanistan. Um, so our unit um, 
we had a pretty kinetic environment and that's a, I guess a nice term to say it was, there's a lot going on. So yeah. uh, my main function in, in that is um, for, you know, the personnel functions um, and the, the most, maybe most important one is personnel accountability. So commanders need to know where people are in relation to the battlefield because those are fluid things. And so additionally, responsibilities in, in, uh, when we would have a mission to accomplish, advising on personnel requirements, personnel capabilities and strengths, uh, the risk there. So, you know, as an advisor, kind of as a strategic and tactical advisor to a commander on personnel functions. Um, and then it, 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 you know, just a lot of the same paperwork. I mean, employee mm -hmm. onboarding paperwork is kind of the same. I mean, they have, you know, we need to know who they are and, and same, you know, uh, who their next of kin is. Um, obviously for some different reasons, um, but that's important. They, they have, you know, wills that they fill out. They have, you know, um, we, we same functions for the onboarding paper, paperwork, sure. if you want to call it that. Now, I'm trying to use civilian terms, so uh, sure. I hope my, my military experts listening don't, you know, criticize me for using <laughs> expressly for civilian terms. Uh, but one of the, you know, maybe something that people don't realize is that, you know, uh, in, in theater, I was also responsible for all the postal operations. And, and so the postal operations is mail. And so um, I had, you know, training and trained individuals that, you know, uh, collected and distributed mail throughout um, our area of operation. So, you know, the, the place where I was, was a major uh, kind of a bigger headquarters area, but we had some really remote environments that our, you know, uh, soldiers in, uh, operated in. So it was mm -hmm. my responsibility to get their mail to them. Right. And so kind of a neat deal is that, you know, getting mail to them, uh, two ways you can do that is through air assets, helicopters primarily, or through, you know, getting on the road and driving the mail around. So mail sometimes gets a little slower as you drive it, especially in, in you know, remote locations. Uh, but I had opportunity during battlefield circulations. One thing we did is, is to take mail to soldiers on Thanksgiving and Christmas. So mm. 2010, I spent my Thanksgiving and Christmas delivering mail to people and handing them pack packages from home. And so right. that was extremely rewarding. Sure. Uh, being able to do that. So um, you know, and then we, you know, uh, handled, you know, advising on replacements because people would, would leave theater and come back into theater for different reasons. Um, anytime we had a casualty, um, that could be a minor injury to a catastrophic one. It was my responsibility to track where that person was. So they may be locally treated. They may go to a higher level hospital in Germany or back to Walter Reed, but they were still our responsibility. So understanding where they were and where they were in their treatment. And I acted as a liaison to inform my boss, you know, where people were and what they were doing. So, and then, you know, uh, not the most fun, but the most important one role that I had was the casualty notification piece. Mm. And that's an unfortunate consequence of what we did, but it was a necessary that we get the information correct um, to the family of the person that was involved sure. in you know, sometimes a, you know, providing the ultimate sacrifice. Sure. How do you, I don't, uh, how do you resolve that with yourself? Of, I mean, you know, I've been in situations where passing information along, but it's to coworkers. It's not the same as going to um, potentially next of kin. So it's definitely a different environment. 
Yeah, it, it, you, I mean, so typically casualty notification are handled by, uh, you know, a number of resources. So we have to liaise with our stateside counterparts. So they would be the one directly to, you know, contact and have information. Um, and so the, I, I, the best practice for me was to have accurate information on what happened. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. They, the first thing a family member wants to know why when something went, went wrong sure. is what happened. And what 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 what's next? And so it may mean, you know, your family member had a minor injury and is going to be fine, you know, but we still have to notify that. And so you want to get the accurate information. And so um, that, you know, as, as you probably experienced, sometimes information gets misconstrued or misinformed up and down and back and forth. So the accuracy information is, is pivotal because mm -hmm. uh, you don't want to give catastrophic information when it wasn't necessary or not give that information in a timely manner when you had it to give right. um, because you know that was probably the most important thing and, and that's one thing that you know I made sure our you know my HR guys and uh, didn't get wrong you know we have to get that right so anytime we you know had a uh, an event that included casualties I was the first one notified and I had to take the lead on ensuring that that reporting process um, and I would like to say this morning, the only things I really micromanaged um, mm -hmm. because I did not want that to go wrong. So is this important to me? So uh, and, and that's fair. That's a good thing to be. That's a good thing to be uh, tedious about. I totally get that. So the thing is, we, we you know we we were able to you know communicate with you know uh, our counterparts at, back at home station. Uh, good information too. So we had weekly video teleconferences that we were able to provide good news. And so right. it is that, that conduit of information and making sure that, you know, from the personnel piece, you know, how that worked was super important to me. Um, you may, I'm going to back up for just a second because you talked about, you know, basically knowledge, skills, and ability sounds like in your, in the role there, that's even more important than potentially in an office environment where, you know, where I normally work or because, sending someone out to do something um it, it could be dire so i mean yes I, i'm trying to state this differently but i guess that's not necessarily true if somebody's working on a construction site if they don't know how to do you know handle a you know heavy equipment you know that could have dire consequences but i just think in in your role i would see i would think that i would think of it differently of being wow, we really need to know, and that needs to be document, documented what their skills are of having that person, the right person fitting the right role. And how much time and energy went into that for, for, for you, for military, for groups? Yeah, so replacement operations is something that we have to, you know, because uh, we send out and just to kind of maybe get in the minutia for a minute, not try to bore people, we you know, as a unit had to communicate to our, you know, higher um, headquarters through, you know, we'll say big army, what our, you know, personnel needs were. Mm -hmm. So that information was important because if you ask for the wrong skill set, you're going to get the wrong skill set. And then, mm -hmm. and, and so we had to be really good at what our vacancies were, if you want to call it that. So our vacancies, we had to understand that. So if I needed someone who needed to be able to cook you know it didn't help me that they brought me a communicator 
Um, right. You know, so, so, and then, so, um, and then making sure that that communication, and then when we received incoming personnel, really making sure that we put them in the right place for the right reason. Um, yeah. You know, because we, you know, we, we received everyone from a brand new, just out of their initial training soldier to our seasoned leaders come to a unit. Right. Know, through through the HR function, you know, we get senior leaders into the organization through the HR function and they need uh, the same, you know, basic reception integration process to happen for them and, and the tools and resources, you know, their desk set up and their email set up and all those things, you know. Right. Um, you know, so you just need to make sure that, you know, you're part of that, just like any other HR function, part of the team that, you know, helps facilitate the onboarding of new employees and sets them up for success, you know, and then, you know, maybe gives a little pushback. Hey, we got three of these, but we needed two of these. Can we, when, mm-hmm. and then when are we going to get two of these? Well, you're going to get two of those. And, and so it's a constant negotiation, uh, you know, either, you know, at your, you know, uh, continental United States location or overseas of, of that, you know, replacement operations and who needs to be where. And then, mm-hmm. you know, and, and some of those vacancies are due to promotions, you know, I get promoted yeah. and that, that, that assignment no longer appeals to me and, or I need to go somewhere else to do my, the role that I've been promoted into. So, yeah. um, so sometimes it's a positive thing, you know, so it, it, it is definitely a dance though. Um, right. And, and definitely you have to stay on top of it. You just touched on something to me of onboarding. It doesn't matter if somebody is, um, you know, a, a seasoned leader or brand new, it's still new. And yeah. so having to to be aware that it's new <laughs> and it takes yeah. a little bit of time to understand all those new things. Yeah. And and so, yeah, you, you're absolutely correct. And sometimes, unfortunately, leaders get lost sometimes in that mm-hmm. they think they're, you know, coming to an organization and they should know everything. Um, and sometimes they don't. So yeah. they do know some stuff. So you just have to, you know, tailor it toward the individual. And I think that's where that individual approach to, you know, reception integration, mm-hmm. you know, onboarding, you know, getting them involved in the organization, understanding their true needs, what they, you know, what they, mm-hmm. what they don't have, you know, um, is it, super important. And so that's part of a process that you have to be, you know, kind of on top of. So... Being away, and sorry, sorry, I'm not I'm not involved with very many persons military, so I'm being curious. And um, so, what is transition of being away, and then if you're on a tour for a season, and then coming back home, what's that like? What What are some tips and tricks that we, um, if we have businesses that maybe transition somebody to work somewhere else for a little bit to come? You know, what what are some tips and tricks for us? Yeah, well, for probably, you know, uh, probably fortunately or unfortunately, by the time I was deployed to Afghanistan, the the Army had gotten good at that. I mean, we have been in Afghanistan for nearly a decade by the time I got there. And so they were much better off than the initial, you know, post 9-11, you know, deployment situation. So um, the infrastructure was already in place. You know, you're transitioning from one unit to another that the unit has been there for a year. So you have, you start those conversations months out with the, your peers across, you know, in Afghanistan. So I was talking to, you know, mm-hmm. the HR director at that level, probably months out and seeing and getting information, you know, expectations, lessons learned, 
you know, how to do something. So I think part of it is just understanding and planning and coordinating, you know, anticipating what needs are and then developing plans to meet those needs. So, you know, for us, you know, it, it was a, you know, in, in some ways, a good thing, a finite timeline. We knew it was going to be a 12 month deployment. And mm -hmm. so, you know, you can kind of set expectations of and look forward to something in the future for, you know, for at least for our experience. So, you know, families know, okay, well, and then can think through things that they're going to miss and things they're going to look forward to. And so yeah. kind of making sure that, you know, the individuals and, and at this time, you know, it, uh, there was quite a few seasoned, you know, previous deployed veterans in our organization, um, having them give lessons learned and some mentoring to mm -hmm. maybe individuals who haven't had that experience yet. And the same thing is connecting family members to that same network of help. So right. maintaining that connection and conduit of, of, of maybe a, what we call a mentorship program so that you don't feel like you're alone and afraid and no one's out there that is going through the same thing you're going through. So I think that was kind of the, the key point that I think helped, you know, the military be successful during, you know, the global war on terror is that, you know, we kind of took lessons learned and, and tried to make the best of those lessons learned and, and improve every time we did something. Yeah. Transitioning out of military into civilian work life, how does that look different? What is something somebody in private sector needs to know? Because I'm sure there's lots we need to know. Well, you know, and I kind of alluded a little bit before I had a, you know, sneak peek, you know, I was chosen about mid-career for a fellowship at State Farm. And so mm -hmm. I spent a year in Bloomington, Illinois, working at the headquarters of State Farm in their training and development department. And I was just basically a, I mean, I was still paid by the Army. Everything was the same. All the difference was I wore khakis and a shirt instead of, you know, a mm -hmm. combat uniform. So I had kind of a year's experience of understanding that scary, we'll call it, corporate name. What is that? Because a lot of law military, you know, individuals, they, you know, don't have a, they have very limited or no experience, you know, in mm -hmm. sometimes civilian, you know, um, employment. Um, so it can be scary. What does that mean? Am, am I going to be looked at differently? How does that work? Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of it's just apprehension from the unknown. And I think that's true when you transition between any organization. Mm -hmm. um, I think just understanding that, you know, uh, a, a veteran of, you know, a military experience has probably got, for the most part, a lot of transferable skills that you can take advantage of as an employer. Mm -hmm. And they're not, um, they're still part of, you know, they're not, uh, you know, a distant cousin to uh, you know, uh, what we do. They, they know they're, they're people too. I guess they right. got, they're, they've got, you know, um, obviously some, you know, military experience, but it's not such a rigid lifestyle that they don't know how to behave you know, because they probably live in a civilian community. They probably go to a church somewhere or play basketball somewhere. Or, you know, most, you know, uh, most people have that experience. So it's not like they've never been around, you know, non-military individuals and had to, you know, flourish. They probably do a lot. This is not in the workforce. Right. So, you know, just trying to understand that maybe they're going to speak, you know, a little bit of a different language, which is not unusual. I mean, if you go work for, you know, a healthcare provider or a construction team, there's going to be certain things and phrases and words and, 
And just like in HR, we talk about OSHA and, and FMLA and all those things. And sometimes you'd have to, you know, parse out what they're talking about, but really it's all the same language. So um, there's a lot more similarities than differences, but it can be intimidating because I right. think there's a solution that, you know, I've been military for so long, or I've been out of the civilian workforce for X amount of years, you know, am I going to have to relearn everything? And I don't, I don't think that's the case. So um, I think there's a lot of relevance in, in things that, you know, that civilian employers can take from veterans and make their, you know, workplace better. So. Uh, so Todd, I got a good question for you that goes along with that. What are uh, Hi, some reasons? Todd, how you doing? Tara, how you doing? Well, I just popped right here in the middle of this. I've just been quietly listening, soaking it all in. It's been amazing. And uh, I'm going to get to it later, but I got to ask you some questions about your beard. But before I do that, I want to <laughs> stay on topic. Very difficult for me to do sometimes, but I'm going to try. And that is, uh, in, in relation to what you're talking about, as far as I, I do believe that uh, employers out there have this genuine desire to hire veterans. And I know that veterans have this genuine desire to be hired, but uh, there is still just this divide, this, this challenge to getting those two to meet. And so whenever I talk to somebody who has bridged that gap and is on the other side to help kind of bring that in, what resources out there do you find helpful to help employers find uh, those veterans? And then once we bring them on, what resources can we utilize to help kind of bridge that language gap and that skills. I don't think it's a skills gap, but I think it's this uh, imaginary skills gap out there that we need to kind of just uncover to get to make that connection. Rob, that's a really great question. And we could probably have a complete other podcast and I am absolutely not a veterans hiring expert and there are so many resources <laughs> and, and actually um, the military has done a fantastic job probably for quite a while of providing transition assistance to veterans. So kind of on the back end of that, I will say probably what's happened is that makes it easier for employers is that the military is trying to, and they've still got a lot of work to do, and there's a lot of um, emphasis on this still, providing that veteran, that transitioning veteran, the skills and resources to make their military experience translate to the employer so it's easier for the employee to understand what they bring to the table. And so they go through resume writing classes, they go through, they are given a free LinkedIn, um, at least they were, you know, uh, account, and they're giving, you know, how to conduct, in, you know, be an interviewee. Yeah. Um, so veterans are given um, through a transition program that they start, you know, months out before they, you know, get out of the military, that they're given an opportunity to kind of get them ready. And then, you know, how to navigate, you know, uh, social media and different, you know, uh, ways to apply for jobs, um, you know, through Indeed and Glassdoor. So they're given, you know, classes on how to apply with for a job and then really rewrite your resume because we can talk and I've Try to do a good job of it to try to talk the language that take the military speak out of my right. experience. But, you know, sometimes that is the biggest hurdle. We don't understand, uh, you know, uh, the employer doesn't understand beyond what they've maybe seen in the media or the news that beyond carrying a weapon and going to the rifle range that the, the veteran who's, you know, been in satellite communications for six years is a satellite communications expert. I mean, and they know probably 
what you need them to know. And so there may be some, you know, different cultural experiences, but I don't think that's really any different than any other, you know, transition from one, you know, company to another. Um, and I think really marrying the veteran up with their skill sets and their interests and then having that conversation about, you know, where they are and what they want to do. You know, mm -hmm. and some veterans don't know. They've been primarily focused, for instance, in, in a leadership role where they've had, you know, basically mainly leadership experience. And, and that's an important facet of military life is those you know key leaders. But what other organizational you know, efforts have they spearheaded that an employer could understand? You know, a lot of veterans are experts in logistics. You know, they're, you know, experts in communication. They're, you know, experts in computers. They are, you know, skilled facilitators. Um, so beyond just the, you know, easy to say a guy's driving a truck for the military, he can probably drive my truck. You know, uh, there's a lot of other, you know, skill sets that veterans have. So I think the back back that up again is to reiterate, they're trying to teach the veterans how to tell the employer, this is what I can bring to the table. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the, the the bridge that needs to be gapped. I don't think it's inherent on the employer to really lean back and say, hey, veteran, how can I best, you know, hire you? Because that's like, it would be kind of the same thing. Any employer really, you know, the, the workforce needs to come to us ready to do what we need them to do. And mm -hmm. veterans are not unique to that. So I think it's it's the military's forward leaning, trying to get those veterans skill sets transferable, translatable. And then, and then they've done some additional things um, like um, for our combat medics, giving them EMT training and mm. certifications and national licensures mm. that translate immediately to a skill set that an employer would need. So that's just one of our other examples. So I think the military's leaning forward in that. And I think that's the biggest bridge that we can get. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, that is good. Okay, we've talked a lot about military and we have some uh, big themes right. because Todd is well-rounded. We have some big right. themes I still want to touch on. So I'm going to switch gears really quickly um, to discuss. So we talked about COVID um, that, you know, it changed the world, changed how we did some things, but you happen to be working for a medical focused healthcare provider. I just can't imagine what stress that was on HR in that role because I work, yes, I, you know, as a business, we had stressors, but we also didn't have persons who were, you know, I didn't work with persons who were handling something like this every day. So what, I don't know that it's the right way to ask it, but like, how were you a support, a connector, all of those things for those persons who were basically in the trenches every day? Yeah, we know the spring of 2020, everybody's life turned upside down. And what we thought was going to happen didn't. And, and so our, you know, 2020 changed in so many different ways. Um, and I kind of try to, as we just ended the public health emergency effective May 11th, kind of the official end, I guess you want to call it that, of what we've been through. Um, I've, you know, tried to go back and kind of reflect on what these past, you know, three plus years have meant. And yeah. so, and there's a lot of, you know, positive lessons and things that we've done. So I think initially what we, you know, were obviously um, focused on was trying to keep it away, mm. you know, and, and that's a lot of people, hey, if we can just keep it in that other state where they have an outbreak, mm -hmm. you know, we're going to be okay. And so, mm -hmm. I mean, that quickly, as we all know, transitioned 
um, probably with the Thunder game in March, um, where it was it was that wasn't going to be the case. So right. um, then we had to go into immediate, in my organization, immediate. Um, how do we protect our, you know, our residents and elders from getting sick? And so that was a focus in in trying to develop, and then also kind of leading and following, you know, the you know, federal government's guidance on what we were required to do, and and then communicate to families because it was an extremely scary, fast moving, and challenging time. Yeah. And so then we, you know, and from an HR perspective, one of the unintended consequences that I, you know, uh, we had a lot of displaced when we shut everything down. Not just our company, we didn't shut anything down as our company, but when the you know economy basically shut down, we had a lot of displaced workers. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things I tried to do was reach out because we needed caregivers and mm-hmm. caregivers aren't necessarily nurses. I mean, anybody can provide care um, at some level. Um, tried to, you know, get as many of those employees who are displaced into our roles. So we have, you know, needs for housekeepers. You know, mm-hmm. and if every hotel gave their housekeepers the, hey, you can't come to work today. Well, I need a housekeeper. So, you know, it was quickly transitioned between trying to find displaced workers that could augment our workforce because our work right. ramped up drastically and our need for our workforce, you know, increased because we had to, you know, maintain our operational, you know, uh, posture that, you know, sometimes stretched us really thin. Um, and then, you know, we were faced with the same thing. Our workers, just like anybody else, were getting, you know, COVID, getting sick. Um, and so trying to understand and work through that piece was was extremely challenging. Um, and then me personally, you know, I, I would try to go in and provide, you know, assistance where I could. You know, I'm not a clinician, um, but I can, you know, provide, you know, an activity for somebody. I, I sat and visited with a lot of our residents, you know, during their meal times, help, you know, give them meals and and just provide, you know, some type of um, additional, you know, companionship because a lot of family members, I mean, family members were restricted from seeing their loved ones. Right. That's that's one thing I was hoping to touch on is that it just seemed like I, we had somebody who was in a care facility and, and, you know, they couldn't wander in their hall. They couldn't go. And so there was isolation for so many people who, you know, and I would assume that you saw that for persons that you, that were in your care. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, we all tried and, and to do the best we could to, you know, you know, protect and care for and, you know, be, you know, do whatever we could. So that was, you know, my main focus. And then it transitioned into when it wasn't going to be two weeks, it wasn't going to be a month. We were in the summer and then we're in the fall and, and we had, um, in a few of our different locations, um, and one of them in, in Tulsa, Broken Arrow area, I, a COVID-specific unit that was a step-down unit that graduated, we call graduated, you know, hundreds of COVID um, patients. Mm-hmm. So it was a, a completely isolated wing of one of our facilities that the only thing they did was care for COVID patients who, you know, the hospitals didn't know what to do. Well, they didn't know what to do with them, but they didn't have, you know, they needed to go somewhere else because yeah. hospitals capacity was where it was. So we provided care for a long time for a lot of residents. Mm-hmm. But from my perspective, I, I wanted to understand when we have healthcare workers that are in that type of work environment of high stress, dealing with COVID patients solely, 
how does that affect them? So, yeah. uh, you know, we talk about doing state interviews and I can tell you doing a state interview is something I took very seriously. I interviewed hundreds of our employees, mm. to see what their, where they were right, um, and, and what they needed and what we could help them with and what they were worried about and what they were fulfilled with. And so, you know, I was able to do that with, uh, you know, uh, a lot of our employees to understand, hey, what's it like for you as an employee? Tell me your experience during a pandemic. Share your mm -hmm. story with me so that, you know, if there's something that we can do as an employer, we'll do our best, you know, because, mm -hmm. you know, what you're doing is, is you know, I think important, critical and historical. You know, right. so these characters right. are my heroes and what they did was that historical, I, I like you using that word with that. Completely true. So, so you know, trying to get them to share their experience so that I could translate that to organizational goals that we needed to do because we had to pivot our HR resources in ways that we did not know because no one had the book to open it up and say, how do you deal with, you know, a pandemic for years? Do you think that um, high stress experience from military did that help you did that hurt you did it come into play at all i mean i think it um provided i think my experience dealing with you know some extreme challenges um in my previous you know work experience definitely uh created a little bit of um, familiarity with me that i was able sure. to you know i, I kind of walked down that path of of being in some really challenging situations before um, and how to deal with those and get on the other side of those. So I definitely think it helped me. Um, but then, you know, also trying to really empathize and understand with the people that are, you know, in that, you know, boots on the ground, so to speak. And we use that as a military term, but I think a lot of people have used that for, you know, some of the healthcare workers, they, they're, the, they're the first line of protection, sure. you know, and care for individuals. So, there's a lot of similarities there, and and you know I, I I don't think that was um that 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 path I had to walk down twice was um a uh, and just a, a I think it was for a purpose. I think there's a reason yeah. for me being yeah. able to do that. Yeah, yeah, your experience and where you were where you were placed now. It wasn't accidental. I don't think I was right. those decisions on accident. I think there was some guidance there somewhere. Yeah experience upon experience upon experience so all right i'm switching gears again because i know that we've been talking for a long time and i want to get to all of these things so you have in your linkedin profile of being a diversity champion so i, I want to hear what's your focus here what you, because this can go in lots of different areas we have diversity equity can mean one thing inclusion is our goal so What's Todd Be Todd Beasley's champion terminology out of this? You know, uh, you know where I've been, what I've done, you know, for the past twenty plus years, thirty plus years, is I realized the value of having people from, you know, a diversity. We'll say it just to make coin the term. It's a it's a it's a value. So I I know that for a fact, and I've experienced mm -hmm. it, and so I've been, you know, able to work with people from all over the world, and so. Um, 
so I think from an HR standpoint, the practitioner, you know, what I look at is, you know, if we're focused on diversity in our practice, we've got a lot of work to do. If that's our first, first focus, because I think most organizations should be a little further along in that, if you want to call it that. So um, it, we talk about equity and inclusion. I think that's going further on down where in you know, the band of excellence that we need to be in. Inclusion is something that um, leads us to, I think, the ultimate and kind of the most recent terminology is belonging. And for mm -hmm. me, that just translates to, you know, that um, psychological safety that our employees should feel. Mm -hmm. When I come to work, you know, if I'm part of something and I feel included and I belong, then I can really provide value. Um, and that really just starts with kindness, dignity, and respect. You know, if we always put that lens on um, as an employer and employee, then we can take advantage of and trying to give that, you know, you know, spring sound that from the mountaintops, how much that posture can, uh, you know, positively impact an organization from every metric, every study is if we can take our employees and give them opportunity to feel psychologically safe, they're going to give you all the tools and things that you need to be successful. You know, mm -hmm. they're going to be providing input without thinking that they're going to fear like someone's going to think's wrong with me. They can come be their true self at work and feel like they can flourish. And so that's going to create a productivity, you know, uh, on another level. So that's where I'm really focused. And, and fortunately, my company supports that 100% and is just on board with that. And so that's where we're kind of hanging out is um, in the inclusion belonging. Like, how do we get our employees to understand how important they are, regardless of where they came from, regardless of what, where they were before they walked in our doors, how important they are to our mission Mm -hmm. And it, this mission can translate to any organization. It just so happens that we care for elders. So how important they are to providing an exceptional care um, for an elder. So that could be translate to any organization. So we really, um, and I would hope that that would be kind of where, you know, most employers are trying to go to is the, you know, inclusion and belonging piece mm -hmm. where, you know, they, one, because I think it's the right thing. You know, uh, that basic human need of, you know, dignity and respect and treat people with kindness. And, 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 but the same thing is they need to realize employers do if they haven't, how beneficial it is to them and their success. Mm -hmm. So that's where I'm grooving on. That's where I'm hanging out. That's where I'm shouting from the mountaintops. Let's, you know, um, look at it from that lens. So am I behind the curve now that the term is D, E, I, and B? Diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. I, I, you know, I don't know if we are because I think we can continue on down that path. But I think you know, trying to articulate it in a way that we can understand the employee experience in a way that makes them, you know, it's have the a engagement experience. part too, right? It's 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 the engagement portion too. The belonging is equally yeah. engagement. Yes, you can say you're included in this invite, but it doesn't mean that you're feeling fulfilled and being there that you feel, you know, you know, understand what I'm trying to say. It's like, yeah, I had an invite to show up, but that doesn't mean that I'm partaking in what, what's being offered. Yeah. I'm going to paraphrase and I read a quote and I don't, I, and I'm going to get it wrong. So if someone's can probably Google it and get me, you know, trouble, but you know, I think diversity is being, being invited to the party. Yeah. Inclusion, inclusion is being, you know, invited to dance. 
and belonging is knowing all the songs. Yeah. So, you know, I think, you know, if we can continue trying to, to um, describe that in, in ways that, you know, people understand, I think we're going to get there. And I think that's, you know, if we, you know, have a posture as an employer, like, welcome to our team. You're so important. Right. You're excited you're here. You know, tell us your story and tell us how you can help us do what we need to do. You know, right. and so I think that's where, you know, I think that's where we need to go. So that's why, you know, my, you know, focus for, you know, quite a while now has been the DEI initiatives uh, in our company, because I think most employers want to be there. Um, mm -hmm. But giving them some tools on how to get there is, is kind of relevant as well. Yeah. Think that it, it's. I, I pause because, yes, the all the, all the things of of making those things happen. It's the belonging part where it's you're reliant on other people to help you do those pieces too. So that's everybody can say words, but it's it's the actions part. Yeah, okay. and I think you need to look at the, you know, what does it mean? And so from what I've started with, you know, when I started with is I just kind of look this way, you know, when an employee walks in the door and really starting with recruiting um, and I've dissected a whole lot of job ads and some of them are exclusionary mm -hmm. and not very diversity, you know, mm -hmm. and, and so there's actually been some lawsuits and, and stuff that, you know, mm -hmm. uh, through AI recently. So I thought that was interesting. But, you know, um, what's the best first day ever? If we can answer that question and then every day in, in, the, in the next day and the next day and the next day. So as an employer, look at what is the best first day ever? What does that mean for a new employee? And then every day after that. Yeah. So I think if you can answer those two questions and, and then your, your DEI solution will be, you know, pretty apparent. Yeah. I've had, I've listened to some speakers and um, one person was talking about, his first day, because you reminded me of this, his first day, he went in and he had a place to sit. He had his business cards ready. His computer was already, it was amazing. And this other person gave this example of, I, I went in and I was put at a desk that traveling persons from my business, you know, from this business sat. So no one spoke to me the entire day. So, you know, just those things of uh, us being, you know, people being reminded of not golden rule, but platinum rule. How do they want to be treated? So absolutely. That's, that's so true. Um, how did you become involved with Oklahoma city HR emerge program, which is the mentoring program for um, emerging HR professionals with rock Shirao and Danny Bogle. <laughs> yeah, we crossed paths and I, you know, inquired and we had a lot of good conversations. Um, Roxa's exceptional connector and an exceptional what she does. So everything I think she does touches, you know, she touches turns to gold. She's amazing. So mm -hmm. we had a lot of really good discovery conversations. And I think that's important to understand um, what she, you know, envisioned for that program and what, you know, the mentors look like as far as, you know, what they wanted to do and so I think it was, uh, we just determined it would be a good fit. And so right. uh, that was last summer. And then we started the program in this next, it started in January and we went through the process and just graduated nine mentees yesterday. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think it was, it was extremely positive 
uh, experience for me. But that's kind of how we connected. I was just, you know, curious and she, you know, we visited about it and, uh, you know, and thoughtfully considered it before we move forward. So what were some things that occurred out of this program, this program uh, that you got to be involved with? And, and what do you see with the persons who graduated from the emerging professional um, group? One thing, and this isn't a flip response, I got more than I gave. You know, when you invest and help people and try to collaborate and try to connect, you know, it is 100%, you know, a positive return on investment. And so I, I didn't, that wasn't really my goal. I just wanted to help, you know, I'm like, Hey, right. you know, we got new, you know, emerging HR professionals. And I think they have some questions. Maybe I can answer them. You know, I think I'm further along on the other side of my career than they are. So let me just maybe visit with them and and then maybe help them along their path and, you know, give them some, you know, tips, tricks, wisdom, guidance, some you know, pitfall yeah. avoidance suggestions and all those things. So, um, but then, you know, what I learned from them is we've got a bright future in HR. Good. I mean, if they're a barometer, we are in a good place because they are smart. They are competent. They are energetic. And I'm extremely excited um, about where we're going to go as, as a, you know, as a, you know, people operations. Um, so that, that's something I would take from, from this process. And I, you know, I told Raksha last night again, hey, whatever you need me to do, I'm in. Because this is this is, needs to have a lot of traction, and we need to grow this as much as it, it can. Because yeah. It's extremely beneficial for both sides of the coin. Yeah, thank you for volunteering, and thank you for sharing that because I think it's amazing. I'm not, I, it, we all. I know that that is um, being shared with Tulsa. They're going to have a program there. Um, <clears throat> smaller chapters. I think we just need to figure out how we can share that with smaller chapters in Oklahoma too, because it's worth it. Doesn't mean, you know, if you have a smaller amount of people, doesn't mean that there still aren't up and coming <laughs> HR professionals. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and on on the heels of that, I just want to laugh and, and make this side comment. My son uh, just he he got a job, uh, but true, truly going through an onboarding procedure. And, and he sent at the end of his first day, he sent a text message said, mom, I don't know how you do what you do. And I was like, yes, this is a win. I'm validated. But then the best part, he was like, and then you did this stuff at work. And then you come home to us at home. And I said, you guys, you guys, um, I just practiced on you for what the things that I had to do at work. It was like, I just love that is someone who is an up and coming potential contributor to work realizes the impact of what HR has. And so I think that HR is, you know, kind of in that shining moment right now that people are realizing that this role is important. So yeah, anyway, that's, that's, that, that's, a, that, that's a absolutely, and I've had somewhat of that same experience. So it's, it's kind of fun to, you know, have that, that validation, like you said. Mm -hmm. of, you know, the, what we do to, you know, enhance organizations and, and their, you know, prosperity. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. All right. You listed one last thing. This conversation is going over and I don't care because this is my favorite subject that we're getting ready to get to. I said one of my favorite, it's not, it's not F1 Rob, hang on. 
um, so Todd listed that he is an ultra marathoner. So I'm really excited because I, I used to run a lot, don't run as much anymore, but man, I get fired up hearing stories. And then whenever you get in the trenches with people and then you hear their stories. So I'm only going to guess that ultra marathoning came into play because this was after military and by golly, you were just used to blowing and going and needing something new. But how, what's the farthest you've run? Uh, a little over 50 miles. Okay. Uh, at one time, well, yeah, this last March I did 62 miles. Okay. Um, have you done some of the races for the, the ultras? Yeah, I've done a couple. Yeah. Okay. Where have you done? So uh, Are they trail or are they road? So I've done a, a couple of both. Um, I did one local race in Oklahoma City called 24 the Hard Way, which is at it. And if people are familiar with Oklahoma City, just north of Hefner Lake is a trail uh, system called Bluff Creek. And so okay. it was a one mile loop for 12 hours. Oh. oh. So, and then I've Ooh. done a horse trail in Indiana. I did a 50 mile ultra marathon there that was on single track horse trail through the mountain, well, I say my hills. Uh, yeah. Extremely rugged terrain. So, and I've done you know, a few other um, locally and self-supported runs as well. Yeah. So do you want to do Western States, which is a hundred mile, a hundred mile or over hundred mile California. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And yeah. it was originally, it was a horse race, but a guy's horse was hurt or something. So he decided he had trained for it. He's decided he was going to run it. So then it became a road race or trail race. Right. Yeah, Western, Western <laughs> States is a, uh, you know, it's that, you know, one of those iconic races and people who, there's a few of us, but that follow ultra marathoning, that is one of the, you know, I think there's a few, but that's one of the most historic and, and iconic races that you can, um, and I don't know that I'm going to have the time or skill set to get into Western States. Um, mm -hmm. And just so logistically, it's a, you know, you have to have competed in and then you can enter a lottery system. It is yeah. an extremely popular race. And so I would yeah. love to go out there and just break trail and see what happens. But, uh, I, you know, um, you know, for me in my you know, season of life, I'm, you know, sticking local and doing some yeah. local stuff and just trying to um, learn through the process of putting myself in um, some challenging situations, you know, how to problem solve. Yeah. So. I've done a couple of races, which are called Ragnar that are 24 hour races mm -hmm. and they did them. Um, so it's normally with 12 people. They've done it. Uh, the first time I did it, there were groups that did it with only six participants, but the goal, the goal was it's a 24 hour race or really however long it's a hundred mile, but people run the next person runs, the next person runs. And then the person runs again, the first person. So you can be on a team for that, Todd. That could be. You know, I never say never. I always look for opportunities to kind of stretch myself. And I, I think I got into it um, by just looking at a goal and thinking, what's audacious? What could I, yeah. what scares me? You know, and I thought, well, um, maybe running a really long way. And so, yeah. you know, what I, and what I found out is that there's a lot of lessons and things you can do while you're involved in that is it's just. And then right I kind of felt here. <laughs> you have to get in your mind and you're going to go into some places. I call it the struggle bus or the pain cave. Yeah. You're going to have to get on the other side of it and you're going to have to problem solve and things are not going to go as planned. And, you know, it's just you yes. and your feet and forward movement. And, 
you know, after a certain amount of time and it's different for everybody, but it eventually happens. Your mind tells you stop. Yep. You need to quit. You're going to kill yourself. You're going to harm yourself. And so your mind is going to start telling you those things and your body's going to react to things. And so you have to kind of get past that and realize yeah. um, that's not the end of the world. Um, you've maybe been here before and you're going to get past this. So it's kind right. of a fun. Um, I say fun. It's a, you know, a, a rewarding experience to kind right. of get through that journey. And I, you know, that journey is such a, um, you know, relevant and fulfilling journey when you're on some of these, you know, challenges and, and challenges can mean a lot of different things for a lot of different people. And, and for me, it just happens to be running long distances, but it yeah. could be taking a, 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 maybe a class, you know, yeah. studying for, and trying to, you know, attain term certification could be another audacious goal that people have. And so I think those things are kind of worthwhile to kind of seek those challenges and try to, you know, reward yourself with some success and also reward yourself the experience of the journey along the way. Yeah. And it is, it's for sure the journey. And then, and you learn tenacity out of it for sure. The, you're, God, you, you deal with a whole bunch of stuff. You think about a whole bunch of stuff whenever you're out on the trail. So I applaud you. I'm super jealous. I don't run like I used to, I like the, but I, I just keep, I miss it so much. And I, uh, and I love having conversations with people who still run really far. I just sit there in my mind. I think, Oh, I can do it. I could, but just got to go have time to go do it. <laughs> right. It, it is hours and hours and hours, hours and hours and hours. Yeah. And, it's and wake up really early. Yeah. And that's the thing, you know, to get to this, you know, start line of one of those events, you have to put in the work beforehand. You can, oh yeah. It, it's, it's very, I don't know many people who can just fake it and show up on day one and get after it. I mean, they've got to put in the work beforehand and, yeah. and that's part of the rewarding journey as well. Those silent alone moments with yourself and, and that you, you know, really learn a lot. So that, that's, that's so true. All right. We have talked really, really long time. Um, and I know that Rob has somewhere else he needs to get. So, but we always ask um, short questions. Didn't send these to you, um, Todd. So we're going to move to our end questions. In the past year, what has been a revelation to you about yourself? That's a great question. Uh, I don't know that I've had any revelations, but let me try to figure one out on the spot here uh, that I've still got a lot to learn. Mm. I think that's one thing I've, you know, and that's exciting for me. Mm -hmm. Fair. I think we all do. Uh, what mantra do you use for yourself and that you like to share with others? Uh, three words, go be kind. Good. Copying from Brene Brown's podcast, what do most people get wrong about you? Uh, they would probably say that um, I'm quiet um, and they don't know why. But I think I'm more inquisitive and I'm more introspective and I think I need to process information. Mm. Uh, but I, I, I think in that, that quiet, they think I'm calm mm. or that I've just got it all figured out. You know, but it's really just me processing and trying mm -hmm. to understand. Uh, but I think that that quietness can be misconstrued as calmness. Mm -hmm. And I'm You're a pretty calm person, but I mean, that's, you know, I think, oh, you've got it all figured out. You just seem so cool and collected, but, you know. You're slotting stuff. 
you're slotting your pieces into their their themes okay what recent tv show have you um been obsessed with i would say anything documentary streaming right now has got me intrigued and i watched one last night briefly and i I didn't get a chance to finish it it's working um and it's narrated and hosted by you know uh, president obama and it's just a a day of the life and look into and i haven't got through it i just kind of looked at it briefly um, a day in life of the average worker, and I and I, I don't know much more about it. Um, oh, it's got me really intrigued. Curious. Okay, I think everybody on here probably needs to listen to that. All right, La- uh, what book or podcast do you like to share with others? Um, most of the podcasts I listen to probably bore people. I like to listen to history podcasts. Um, but a book that I've read recently that really resonated with me, and that is I'm. Um, chewing on it again i've read it a few times is man's search for meeting by victor frankel um victor frankel was a um a psychotherapist during world war ii and was imprisoned in a concentration camp and he wrote a, a very good book on his experiences there and i think the lessons learned for me is that you know from him saying that there if there's a uh uh, a way uh, the why you know can lead to the how mm. you know and i think part of what we're trying to do on this journey of life is to you know go through the challenges and face those and figure it out all what this even means so you know he found meaning in a concentration camp under the most you know horrible conditions you know in our world's history probably mm-hmm. um, arguably and so it, you know i think you know his message really resonates with me and it gets me thinking a lot. I'm sitting here. Is there meaning and belonging? No. Okay. All right. How can people connect with you, Todd Beasley? Yeah, I'm on. I'm mainly on LinkedIn is the main way okay. to connect with me. Or you'll see me at you know uh, OCHR you know meetings and and you know there I could connect with people there as well in person. Okay. Well, Todd, this is a good one. Deep dive in the military and all this stuff. So, so excited that you said yes. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me again. And it was wonderful to talk to you and Rob. Yeah. Yeah, This is great. Okay. Until next time, it'll be, it'll be, when will it be? The next time we talk, it'll be uh, Memorial Day. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's coming up. All right. right. (laughs) Until next time. Bye. Bye.